We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. But uh, today I'm hoping to get into Daniel chapter 9. Um, I know it's kind of going backwards a little bit from where I went the last episode, which was Daniel 11, which was a close-up on the Antichrist. Daniel 11 gives some very particular information about an individual and uh, about the things that he does, the ways that he is, and apparently the the God that he honors with wealth, right? Um, so Daniel 11 was a, a close-up of the man of sin. The Bible refers to this individual again and again and again. And, he, and we see this individual pop up a couple of different times in, in the book of Daniel. We, we mentioned Daniel 7, where you have the little horn. Fast forward into Daniel 11, and you have uh, this individual who exalts himself against every god, even the god of heaven, the real god, and then all the other imaginary demonic entities that people call gods. He opposes those two. So, the Antichrist, I think it's pretty clear from Scripture, is an atheist, right? If he opposes, if he opposes every so-called God, that makes it pretty clear. It it narrows down the religious belief of the Antichrist, and that religious belief is called atheism. Have you ever hung around some really uh, obnoxious atheists, they oppose God. They oppose every kind of God. They don't care if you're Buddhist. They don't care if you're Muslim. They, they certainly, they, 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 there's a little extra um, edge to it if you're actually a Christian and you're actually standing for the truth. But they don't care which God it is. They consider them all the same except the God of heaven. That's the God of gods. They oppose him too. But those people who oppose gods, they're atheists. That's what they are. And that's what Daniel's saying. That's what he's telling us. That's the prophecy about the, the man of sin at the end. He's going to be an atheist. He's going to oppose every God. And so when... An individual comes along who's an atheist and opposes every so-called god. We shouldn't be going like, "Oh wow, that well, that can't be the that that can't be the antichrist," because the antichrist has got to be like some weird satanist guy, right? He's got to he's got to have a cape and he's got to have fangs. You know, he's he's got to be a little more evil than you know Dracula. It's got to be something like that. Well, that's not Dracula is not a good portrait of the antichrist, as it turns out. Well, in some ways, you know, uh, not so much the way Dracula looks, but more like the stuff that Dracula does. You might say, oh, it's cool that he's kind of like that. But the character that we have in our mind for the Antichrist, I think, diverges from what's just plainly written in Scripture. And so that's, that's what we saw in Daniel uh, chapter 11. So now I'm I'm taking a couple of steps back to Daniel chapter 9, which is honestly one of those chapters that I was afraid of. Like, I'm just going to I'm just going to just put it out there right now. I was I was freaked out as I'm like, okay. First of all, <laughs> 70 weeks, right? Okay, right right off the bat I'm I'm on very um shaky um, ground for me because I'm just like 70 weeks. Okay. So I, I need to lock in. But as I actually just kind of started settling into the passage, the passage is far more simple than what I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be like super, you know, enigmatic and symbolic and very difficult to determine of like, is this who are we talking about here? Is this, is this, is this Jesus? Is this, 
Antiochus Epiphanes, like who who are the princes and who are the, the what are these time frames? And but as I settled in to the passage, I I I I feel like the ground is much more stable, at least underneath me. And and much of the fear that I had a, that surrounded the difficult nature of Daniel 9, I think, has been replaced with just confidence in some simple truths. And I think, you know, um, I think the Lord is is leading me on a journey um, on these things and, and just being able to dig and go, God, you know, what is this? Where, where can I anchor truth to and then kind of work out from those truths? And then how, how does this mesh with other things that I see in the Bible? And Daniel 9 now is a, is a solid place for me, actually. Or I, I, feel com- I, I don't want to say I feel comfortable because it's, it's, it's probably one of the... I mean, Daniel 7 is, uh, the, you know, I think in my mind, you know, it is, is like the, the crown of, of the Bible, just the whole, the, just as a, as a summary of what it's all about. Daniel 7 is is unmatched. But Daniel 9 it gives Daniel 9 literally gives us God's to-do list, right? When when we need when we need to get something things done and we don't want to forget about it and we want to maybe be kind of, you know, organized about it, we make a list like okay, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do that. God gives us his list of things that he is going to accomplish. He is going to accomplish these things. And as 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 a prophet receiving this or as one of the the first people to read and understand this, I mean it is it is astounding that this prophecy is given 500 years before Jesus arrives. It's absolutely incredible that this is a time frame that God gives to say, hey guys, I got, I got some things I'm going to get done here. And these things are things that human beings cannot do. No one on earth can do these things. In fact, no one in heaven can do these things save one the Lord of heaven and earth is the only one who can accomplish this to-do list. It's not like anybody else could get this list that God puts here and goes like, oh yeah, uh, d- d- God, don't worry about that one. I got that one. There's no one, no one in the earth who can do what God puts on his list. There's no one in heaven, not the greatest angels not the beings that if we came into contact, they would blow our minds that we would want to worship them. Not even the greatest beings in heaven could accomplish these things. Only one. It's the worthy one who sits on the throne alone forever. (laughs) And that is really, really good news. You don't want anyone else on that throne. There isn't anyone else you want on that throne. He is the only one. He is the only one. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's beautiful. And he's forever. And so every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and it is this Lord of heaven and earth that takes this to-do list and does them in a specific time period. It's not just like God's like, oh my, like, like okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Not only am I going to do this, I'm going to do it in a compressed, limited time frame scale, however you want to measure that. He says, I'm just going to kind of just kind of ease in. To the word here, Lord, we just ask you for your Holy Spirit's guidance as we, we get into your word. 
Lord, we ask you to guide us and speak to us and establish your church in, in this day, God. Anchor us in truth. Anchor us in love. Anchor us in grace-filled obedience to your word. God, fill us, lead us. We look to you. Thank you for your word, God. We trust you. We trust you, and we, we give you all the glory for all the good things you're going to do in your church and your people in the name of Jesus. So I'm, I'm in Daniel chapter 9. And um, there's a big, huge lead up to this, and, and it probably it probably deserves um, it deserves a better treatment than I'm going to give it now because I'm I'm zeroing in on Daniel nine verses twenty four through twenty seven. So at the very end of the chapter, that's where I'm going to zero in on. Now I'm just going to give you the really ignorant. <laughs> a summary of uh, Daniel 9, which is basically, and forgive me if I get this wrong, because I've literally don't, I, I, I have not studied this first half, and, and forgive me, but I haven't. So Daniel is considering the prophecies in the book of Jeremiah, and there are a couple of different places in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, there's a mention of Jeremiah saying, hey, 70 years you're going to be in captivity. And he's considering the 70 years. What's the 70 years? He's, 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 and then he's, he's praying, he's asking God. He has some sort of like, I, this is where I'm ignorant, right? Um, but he gets an answer from an angel, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel is saying, you know, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, presenting my plea before the Lord my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Daniel is a spectacular prophet. Spectacular prophet. There's, there's no, I mean, obviously, you know, John the Baptist is the greatest of the, of the prophets, right? He's, he's the greatest. But Daniel's life and prayer, his prophetic experiences, his interchanges with the heavenly court while he is literally in his body and he's having visions slash encounters with heavenly beings, speaking to him, explaining him stuff and going, hey, dude, I'm here because you are greatly loved. Well, who loves, who loves Daniel? It's God. It's the Lord who is, he, he's, he hears Daniel. He loves Daniel. And then he says, okay, Gabriel. I know you're busy. I know you got the stuff going on, but you're going. I'm sending you to, to Daniel so you can explain this thing. 70 years. He's wondering about the 70 years. Well, I'm going to tell him not necessarily about the 70 years of captivity when Israel was held captive in, in Babylon. I'm going to tell him about a different 70. This isn't 70 years per se. This is a different 70. It's 70 weeks or more specifically, 77s, 77s, like 70 times 7. This isn't the 70-year captivity. This is, a, this is a different 70. God had purposes for the 70 years he exiled Israel in Babylon. But there's another 70, and it's not 70 years this time. It's 70 weeks. Well, what's, what's, what's a week? This is prophetic language that God uses time and again in the Bible, in the Word of God, where he breaks things up into sevens. And he breaks them up into periods of seven years. So like in God's, 
we use years. That's probably, you know, not the kind of time scale that God's like, okay, no, I use a different time scale. It's not a year. He's using seven years. God transcends time. So, like, our time frames may not fit his time frames. So, Israel, 70 years in captivity to Babylon, accomplishes multiple things on God's agenda. He purifies his people. He, in essence, you know, calls out a, a Gideon's army to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, to refound the city. Many stayed back in Babylon. Many did not come. Many chose the pleasures of Babylon over what it would take to rebuild Jerusalem. So those 70 years in captivity resulted in several things that God wanted to, see, wanted to bring to pass. Now he says, Gabriel, go talk to Daniel, not about the 70 years, but about the 77s. The 77s? What's a seven? A seven is a seven-year time period. That's what it is. A seven is a seven-year time period. For whatever reason, God works in increments of seven. And the years, he works in the increments of seven on the years as well. So when God wants to tell Daniel about a 70 weeks or 77s, he's saying, I've got a whole nother level of agenda that I am going to fulfill in literally 490 years. It's like basic and simple math, very simple, but it's complicated enough to go like, okay, this is legit. This isn't just some dude who thought this up. This is a God who measures things in seven-year increments and says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, in, in, 70 of those seven-year increments or weeks, they just call them weeks because it's easier to call them weeks, but they're weeks of years, so a seven-year time period. 70 of those seven-year time periods equals 490 years or basically 500 years. Let's just round it up for everybody. A 500-year period in which... He's going to do these things. And, and these things revolve around the Jewish people. He says in verse 24, Hey, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and about your holy city, about the people, the Jewish people, and about this, and, the, and the holy city for the Jewish, Jewish people, which is Jerusalem. It was the epicenter of Jerusalem was the temple. It was where the people came to worship God. It was the centerpiece of Israel. It was where God dwelt. The almighty, ever-living God dwelt on earth with a people known as the Jews. And he dwelt with those people in a temple that he rigorously had written out all the uh, multitudes of um, ritual and specific designations for things. Just read the book of Leviticus. If you're ever wondering, like, hey, was there much going on there? There's so much going on in that temple. It was where God lived on earth. And he was housed in a temple that the people would come once a year, Passover feast, they would make their sacrifices and they would give their sacrifices to the priest and the priest once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice, a, a sin offering once a year. 
And it was this temple that was the centerpiece of the of the Jews. It was it was it was the Holy of Holies, the temple that went around that. It was the the walls of Jerusalem that went around that. It was like these concentric circles radiating out from the Temple Mount. So God says, I've got things that I'm going to accomplish and this regards the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And what do you know? It's two, oh, I should say 2,500 years after this prophecy is written, we can still speak of the Jews and Jerusalem today. That is astounding. God says 70 weeks or 490 years are decreed about your people and about your holy city. Now here's the list. You know what? I take it back. I'm I'm ready to read this one right now. I'm like, wait, nope. Actually, that's the first one on the list is not something that God accomplishes. This is something that humanity largely accomplishes, but more specifically, the Jewish people accomplish. This one, God doesn't take credit for. This one is a human reality. The first thing on the to-do list is to finish the transgression What transgression? One thing that's important to understand is that Jesus understood. He read Daniel 9. He understood what he was reading. And he, it was part of the way he understood the world that he was living in. And what would happen soon thereafter. Jesus makes these very startling very harsh, very ominous statements. When he's talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel in the day that he lived, those who were in charge of the temple and in charge of the synagogues, the, the, the religious, those who were in charge of leading people to God in Israel. He said to them, while having a conversation with them, he said, you prove to be the sons of your fathers who killed the prophets. He says, so... Seeing that you are the sons of the fathers who killed the prophets, go ahead and continue in their tradition. I'm, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here a little bit. Continue in their footsteps. Continue in the tradition that they began. And fill up the measure of what they began. Basically, the cup that they began to fill, you are going to fill it to the top and to overflowing. You're going to finish. You're going to complete what they started. Well, what did they start? What did their fathers start? Their fathers started a transgression. They started a transgression. They transgressed against the Lord. In fact, we can even see this here in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. 
We have not, verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, brings righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands of which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Hold on. I'm trying to find where it says, verse 11. This is what I was looking for, verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Daniel talks about finishing the transgression. Jesus takes this very same language and communicates it to the religious leaders of his day and says, hey, why don't you go, hey, you guys are the sons of your fathers who killed the prophets. Now, finish what they started. Complete the transgression. Finish the transgression. And what did that, the finishing of that transgression look like? It looked like falsely accusing unjustly trying, putting to trial an innocent man incriminating him for doing nothing wrong. And nailing him to a cross. And scoffing at his death. That's what the, that's what the completion of the transgression looked like. So God says... Verse 24, 70 weeks, I've got this time period of 490 years that are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to complete it, to complete what was started in killing, refusing to hear the prophets and killing them. A transgression that wouldn't be finished until the very Son of God sent as a gift, would be rejected, incriminated, and executed. The perfect son of God. Rejected, falsely incriminated, obviously falsely, and executed. The finishing of that transgression would then cause the following things to happen. Verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and for your city to number one, finish the transgression. Number two, put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. Bring an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. Well, that's an open door just to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. That is an invitation right there to say the transgression that led to the execution of the perfect Son of God was in fact the offering of a sacrifice to God. An offering of atonement, a once and for all atonement for iniquity, a final washing that would make the temple obsolete. 
all of the temple rituals, all the things that God set up, all the ways that it was happening was pointing to this moment when the perfect son of God would come as a lamb to be sacrificed to God, sacrificed by God, sacrificed to God to make peace with men, to fellowship with humanity, his creation that he wants fellowship with. That glorious cross where the perfect man bled and died his last as a substitution for you and for me. The lamb was sacrificed for sin so that you and I could live. Without this sacrifice, there's no escape for us from the judgment of God. Nowhere to hide. God will bring in everlasting righteousness. So I'm just going to I'm going to read the list in its entirety and then and then kind of go back to a couple of them. So this is all ju- literally just verse 24. I have I have not even talked about two verses yet. This is I'm this is incredible. 70 weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. So did you get all that? Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity. Those are, those are, those are in the same vein. Bring in everlasting righteousness, a righteousness that never ends, to seal both vision and profit, to seal the word of God, basically the canon contained canon of the word of God that is closed. This thing isn't open to be, I don't care... I don't care who you think you are. I don't care what what kind of experience you think you've had. There is no adding to the Bible. The Bible is the Bible. It's closed. The vision and prophet has been sealed. Now, can someone have experiences with God where God speaks to them and they they hear God? Absolutely. But that is all in subjection to the everlasting word of God that is in your close, your, well, hopefully you're reading it. It's open in that way, but close as in the canon is closed. There is no adding. There is no adding to the Bible. This thing is complete. The vision, the prophet are sealed. And to anoint a most holy place. Well, that is an interesting statement. You know, I mean, um, finish the transgression. We, we, we saw the Jews finish, complete their transgression. They executed the Son of God. But in that execution, the perfect Lamb of God put an end to sin and atoned for iniquity. So what, just as Joseph's brothers threw him in a well and sold him into slavery because they wanted to make a buck off of their little brother. That's not cool. (laughs) That is not cool in any possible way. That's not cool. But then this was bigger than Daniel's brothers. This was God who had put him in this situation. And what they had meant for evil, God had meant for Daniel's good and for the 11 brothers' good. He, God didn't give up on them. He didn't, he didn't throw them away. He turned their hearts. He worked in the ways of love. And the good that he purposed for Daniel 
That's right. The, the good that God purposed for Joseph was also purposed for his 11 brothers who needed a heart change, and God brought them around. How did he bring them around? By giving Joseph a serious lesson in prison management, in um, all, all sorts of different ways, but brought Joseph around to be the, basically the head of Egypt. And so we have this very same scenario with the Jews rejecting their Savior, throwing him in a well, which is basically the killing of him, and then Jesus becoming the King and the Lord of the Gentiles, which, you know, as a Jew, like, oh, that's even worse. Now he's the, he's the King of the Gentiles. Oh, that's, that proves that he's fake. Well, Joseph was the king of the Gentiles, right? And so his other 11 brothers would be like, oh, well, he's just a king of Egypt. I mean, those guys are just a bunch of goyim, you know. But there's a little more to it. Jesus isn't just the king of the Gentiles. He's also the king of the Jews, in fact, that was the sign that Pontius Pilate wrote over him on his cross. That Here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's staggering, the implications. I want to keep dragging us back to Daniel 9, verse 24, talking about these 70 weeks. It's, it's so... Such a blessing to consider the list that God puts here that will be accomplished in the 70, let's just call it 490 years, 500 year period where he's going to do these things. I think we, it's safe to say we could probably move on to verse 21. Now, so maybe um, just real quick. Um, anoint a most holy place, which I haven't, or I guess it says the other, um, a variant reading on that is a holy thing. To anoint a most holy thing. I have to think about that. I'm not sure. I mean, at first glance, it tells me of the coming of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just a, an anointing of the most holy places. Like that's got to be the Spirit of God housed inside of human beings. I mean, that's just the seems like the most obvious and glorious and true and super important things to address is the coming of the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. Jesus promised that we would be comforted, strengthened led into the truth. We would enjoy the fellowship and presence of Jesus in our lives through the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so when I, I read about that last thing on the list, to a, anoint a most holy place, I just think that's got to be the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, coming to dwell inside of men. So, I mean... And maybe it's as simple as that, but that's 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 what I, that's the way I'm struck. And so, verse 25, the the time frame begins to be um, broken down for us in these in these um, slices. Verse 25: Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Okay, seven weeks. It'll be seven weeks. That means there's going to be 49 years. 49 years. So, first thing to understand is that going from the Word to restore Jerusalem. Daniel is receiving this prophecy while he is in captivity in Babylon. Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, has leveled the temple, has leveled Jerusalem leveled them and taken the people into captivity. So when Daniel's receiving this prophecy, he's getting he's getting 
information about the future. God has not given up on the temple. God has not given up on Jerusalem. God has not given up on the Jewish people. These things will be restored, God says. So, when the word goes out that Jerusalem is going to be restored, from that point, 49 years forward, there's going to be anointed one, a prince. So, 49 years, they're going to say, okay, time to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, count out 49 years, and there's a prince, anointed one. Who's that anointed one? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's, it, that, that, that's the one where I'm like, I, I don't, why is it important that 49 years? Then you're like, okay, well, is this, you know, what's going on here? So, like, I've just, I've just kind of pushed suspend on that one and just been like, from the word to build, restore Jerusalem, 49 years after that, there's going to be an anointed one, a prince. Then it says, and it doesn't necessarily mean, I don't think that it means like, okay, 49 years are going to click off. And then a 62 week period. So 62 times seven is... Four hundred and thirty-four years. So four hundred and thirty-four years. So you've got forty-nine years. That's easy enough. But then you have four hundred and thirty-four years, and I don't know if that necessarily means they have to be backed up to each other or that they're separate. I don't know how these time frames work. I've I've looked at a little bit on different explanations, and things are all over the board. And so there isn't any one super clear explanation. There's some that are better than others. And then there's two that are pretty good. And then you're like, well, that one probably is the one. But I, I, I didn't want to get tied up in how all that worked. I just kind of wanted to try to shoot through the, through the passage here so we, so we could say like, wow, this is what's in Jesus's mind as he's giving the, the teachings to his disciples on the, the Mount of Olives about the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man. This is key information that will segue right into the Mount Olivet discourse. And so I, I just felt it was very important to address this passage here just because it's so key in the, in the narrative. It says, for 62 weeks or for 434 years, Jerusalem will be rebuilt again with squares and moat but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, so then after that 434 year period, it says, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Well, what does it mean to be cut off? What does it mean when the Bible says somebody's going to be cut off? It means they're going to get killed. He will be killed and will be left with nothing. He will have nothing, nothing, to, seemingly nothing to show for it. But remember, this is the same 70-week time period that God is going to finish the transgression. That is the cutting off of the anointed one. And putting an end to sin and atoning for iniquity. That is all wrapped up right there in verse 26. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The fulfillment, the completion of the transgression, and the atonement. The putting to end of sin, the atonement for iniquity. Then, these are incredibly information, prophetic, fire-packed verses. 
So it goes from the death of the Messiah to the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. I don't know how I'm going to get through all of this in one episode. I really don't. I think I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to call this Daniel 9, 24 through 25. <laughs> Literally, I think those are going to be the only... I'm oh, sorry, 24 through 26. Yeah, I I just don't think... I, I don't think I have the energy. I don't think you're going to have the, the wherewithal to kind of stick with me uh, through this passage. I'm just going to give a quick overview. Then if I feel led to come back and dig up some more of this, but I just want to, I just want to hit it real quick. So after 62 weeks, after that 434 year time period, an anointed one will be cut off. He'll be killed and will have nothing. The transgression will be fulfilled. The atonement will be offered. Sin will be brought to an end. Then it says the people of the prince who is to come, who's the prince who is to come. Well, we've already talked about the Messiah who's been cut off and is now in this chronology cut off and has nothing. So, so that Messiah is gone. So this cannot be the Messiah. That, that This is not the prince who is to come. There's a different prince that is to come. And if you see in verses, the very following verse, 27, there's one coming called the desolator, Right? One who makes desolate. One who makes unholy. His title is the desolator. This is the prince that will come. Oh man, I I want to I get into more of this. There's so much more to get into. But I feel I feel like the time on this episode is coming to an end, so I don't I don't want to push it too far and too hard. I'm going to circle the wagons back on this because this time this time period, and we've really just begun to understand that the 70 week time period addresses the work of the Messiah, but then reserves a final seven years where a desolator will make a covenant with many for seven years, a seven-year agreement between the desolator and fallen humanity to do what? A covenant, an inverse of another covenant. The covenant that Jesus cut in his own blood. A covenant that says, if you're willing to sacrifice this life for me, you will enter into eternal life as a gift, not something that you've earned or that you can somehow boast about. It is a free gift. But the more you will sacrifice your life in this age, the more eternal life you will experience in this age and in the age to come. A, a reward that comes with obedience. That is the new, that is the essence of the New Testament, the new covenant in Jesus. Sacrifice this life for eternal life. Now, if you just take the essence of that covenant and just flip it, make it the inverse, you have a bartering of eternity for this, for the, the pleasures of this temporal life. So if you were to take the new covenant and flip it over, you would have a promise that would go something like this. I pr the promise would be a promise of incredible pleasure and a 
power and and wealth and all the things that this life can offer. Making the most out of this life in exchange for eternity. Your soul for all eternity cut off from the Creator. That is the arrangement. That is the inverse. And that's the covenant that we see that Daniel says, hey, there's, there's coming a seven, this final seven-year period will be marked by a covenant between the desolator and fallen humanity. But I need to stop. I got to stop. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it there for now. And just, I'm just going to call this one, Daniel nine, verse 24 through 27, part one, because a part two is definitely, definitely needed. So maybe it'll be a little, little shorter next time. I won't have to get through near as much terrain as I've had to traverse through these, through these, through these incredibly power-packed verses. So, hope you got something out of today. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that the Lord spoke to you and encouraged your heart, and 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 spurred you to go deeper into to knowing Him. And let me tell you, there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And you can give your heart to him today. You are the one who must open the door. Jesus is knocking. Anyone who opens to him, he will come in and he will fellowship. And there's nothing better than the fellowship of Jesus. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you. And... I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.